Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, and thank you for joining us for Catholic News. My name is Chris Mahalik. Source of our stories is denvercatholic.org. Pray and fast for sexual abuse survivors during First Friday of Lent. Archbishop Samuel J. Aquila is once more inviting all clergy and the laity of the Archdiocese of Denver to offer prayers and fasting for survivors of sexual abuse on the first Friday of Lent. In 2019, the Archbishop designated the first Friday of Lent as a day of voluntary prayer and fasting for the healing of sexual abuse survivors and in reparation for all sins against the dignity of persons in life. All faithful of the Archdiocese are invited to partake in this on February 24th this year. We have made significant progress in addressing this grave evil within the Church, but we cannot let that progress cause us to forget the psychological, physical, and spiritual wounds it has caused, Archbishop Aquila wrote in the 2019 letter. On this designated day once per year, I would urge you to also fast and set aside more, some extra moments of prayer and penance. Archbishop Aquila pointed to a few topics addressed in the Catechism of the Catholic Church to consider in personal prayer and penance. The importance of penance, conversion, and going to confession, why we need the corporal and spiritual works of mercy, and Church's teaching on the dignity of persons and what the Catechism teaches about sexual abuse. The opportunity for penance and reflection make the Lenten season the most appropriate time to designate such a day, Archbishop Aquila wrote. As we prepare for Lent, let us keep our eyes and hearts fixed on Jesus Christ, the Archbishop wrote. As we continue to experience hardships in the Church and in the world, we are called to a deep conversion, both personally and collectively. May this Archdiocese and Day of Prayer and Fasting open our hearts to grow in holiness, so that every person will come to know the healing love of Jesus Christ. Fasting, Fighting a Battle Against Self by Jared Stout He was hungry, Luke tells us of Jesus' struggles with the devil in the desert during which he fasted for 40 days. At the end of it, as you might suspect, he was hungry, Luke 4.2. He proved to us that man does not live by bread alone, because we depend even more upon God, who truly sustains our lives. Even though we must eat and drink, fasting shows us that we have deeper needs. Being hungry can be good, simply for reminding us of this truth. America has descended into a new period of bread and circuses and forgetting the deeper needs of our transcendent nature. We are not even trying to fight this spiritual battle, even though a good portion of the country considers itself Christians. The sociologist Christian Smith popularized a new term to encapsulate the religious sentiments of most Americans of any denomination, moralistic therapeutic deism, which I would describe to be nice, feel good, and God is absent, although you can call out to him in prayer in case of emergency. In this religion of self, God becomes subordinate to the individual's wants and desires, reinforcing the modern notion that self is reality. Carl Truman's masterful book, Strange New World, 
how thinkers and activists redefined identity and sparked the sexual revolution in Crossway 2022, explains how we enshrined the self in so-called in so exalted a position. We now seek to shape our identity through the fulfillment of our desires, particularly sexual ones, and insist the others affirm our choices to validate our sense of worth, Truman explains. The modern self is one where authenticity is achieved by acting outwardly in accordance with one's inward feelings. The scope of our action has expanded through technology, opening up seemingly endless possibilities of self-expression. The collapse of tradition, external anchors of identity, perhaps most obviously those of religion, nation, and family, explains the attraction of the turn inward. The rise of technology feeds the notion that we can bend nature to our own will, that the world is just so much raw plastic material from which we can make whatever meaning or reality we choose. Behind this attempt to redefine the self and reality, we can identify the age-old temptation to become a god unto ourselves, defining for ourselves what is good and evil. Woe to you that are full now, enacting upon all of our desires without reflection or restraint. We have lost self-control and a desire to f for higher goods that are more arduous to obtain. With a full stomach, it is hard to remember that we do not live on bread alone. Human beings are naturally averse to suffering. We can prove that we are more than er simply earthly matter by choosing to suffer willingly. Why would anyone do that? Even on a natural level, we see that accomplishing anything worthwhile requires sacrifice. In a run-up to the Super Bowl, ESPN ran a feature on four-time champion Joe Montana, who knew the secret to winning football better than anyone. It wasn't athleticism or mental acuity or even accuracy. Suffering, Ronnie Lott says, his father had taught him, hey look, you have to be willing to die for it. And he was speaking about football. Love provides an even more profound reason to choose sacrifice and suffering Nothing pulls us out of an inward focus more than love, which is not a feeling, but a choice to put the good of the, of the other first. Suffering proves love, because without it, it's too easy for love to remain lip service. If I truly choose another before myself, then I will sacrifice for their good. This is true in our relationship with God as well, of course. Jesus went out to, into the wilderness to be with his father, to put him first, to show there was nothing more important. His hunger, provide, his hunger proved his love by providing that he would not be satisfied by anything less. Blessed are you who hunger now. Lent is a time of fasting, when Christians enter into the desert with Christ to put him first and to fight against all the attachments and temptations that keep us from him. It is time to say, I will not be full, I will not be satisfied with normal food, because I seek the bread of heaven. Jesus presents himself as the daily bread which has come down from heaven, through which we will live forever, and yet it is too easy to overlook this food as we become full with the junk 
that clouds our minds and inflames desires without ceasing. During Lent, we say no to that which does not truly satisfy. The self, our own selfish being, our individuality that makes each one of us number one must die. In a desert, we do not battle only with temptation from the outside, but especially those that come from within. We have to make a choice whether we will follow the religion of self or take up our cross to live for someone else. It is only by dying to self that we can truly live for God, a life that will be happier, holier, and more truly me, as God made me and called me to be forever. What does Eucharistic revival truly look like? By Mary Healy of the National Catholic Register. What began as an ordinary chapel service at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky, has turned into a revival that has made headlines in secular media around the world and brought visitors from as far as New Zealand, Indonesia, Finland, and Brazil. Students at that chapel service on February 8th, struck by a quiet but powerful sense of the presence of God, did not leave but stayed to worship. Others arrived, and the worship went on overnight, then continuously with no sign of stopping yet, although the university has had to limit public attendance. Those who come describe an atmosphere of deep prayer with testimonies, tears, conversions, confessions of sin, reading of scripture, and praise. This past weekend, the little town of Wilmore saw an influx of more than 20,000 people hungry for a move of God. Meanwhile, the revival is spreading to other college campuses. For Catholics, it can hardly escape notice that this revival has occurred as we are eight months into the Eucharistic revival initiated by the U.S. bishops, a three-year movement to renew the Church by rekindling devotion to the Eucharist, the source and summit of our life. I believe this concurrence of events is no more coincidence, but a prophetic sign. It is as if the Lord, hearing the prayers of so many Catholics desperate for a restoration of faith and life in the midst of a radically secularized age, is giving us a picture of what revival looks like. It is significant that the U.S. bishops, led by Bishop Andrew Cousins of Crookston, Minnesota, have gotten the term revival for the rekindling of Eucharistic faith that they hope will come about. The more familiar term, renewal, could suggest a human effort to improve something that is in poor condition, like an urban renewal project. A reform would imply a change of practices or structures in hopes of improvement. But revival literally means a bringing alive of what was dead is something only God himself can do. Revival cannot be achieved by any human efforts, programs, or strategies, no matter how sincere and energetic. After showing the prophet Ezekiel a valley full of dry bones, God explained that they were an image of Israel, spiritually lifeless, barren, and hopeless. Then God commanded, prophesy, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. 
God alone can put flesh on dry bones and breathe into his people the breath of divine life. Perhaps the best definition of revival in a sense used of Asbury today is from Bill Bright, the late founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. Revival is a divine visitation, a sovereign work of God, an answer to sincere prevailing prayer. During a revival, God will, one, grip his people with deep conviction, repentance, forgiveness, and deliverance from personal sins. Two, fill his people with the Holy Spirit and manifest through them the fruit and graces of the Holy Spirit. Three, fill the church and community with his presence and power. Four, cause non-Christians to earnestly seek him. Number And five, ignite in his people, young and old, a passion to bring the lost to Christ at home and around the world. What would happen if the Catholic Church in the U.S. began experiencing a Eucharistic revival in this sense? Many people who are now living a life of compromise, receiving the Eucharist while continuing in grave sin, or showcasing their Catholic faith while promoting radically secular values and policies, would be gripped with conviction and make a beeline to the confessional. Many of those who go through the motions, attending Mass but spiritually stagnant, would surrender their lives entirely to Jesus as his disciple, be set on fire with the Holy Spirit, and begin to manifest this charis charismatic and sanctifying gifts. People would begin to subjectively experience the living presence of Jesus in the tabernacle and especially in the Eucharistic liturgy of the gathered church. Even non-believers would inexplicably become desperately thirsty for God and show up at the church door begging for someone to lead them to living water. Young Catholics in droves and even older prevailing pew-warming Catholics would be stirred with zeal to bring the gospel to the lost, whether to the neighbor next door or the tribesmen in Fiji, a zeal like that of St. Pat Patrick, Cyril, and Methodius, Francis Xavier, Francis Cabrini, and Therese of Lisieux. The key words in Bright's definition are divine visitation and servant work of God. Such a spiritual awakening like that of the extraordinary revi revivals that took place in 13th century Europe at the preaching of the early Franciscans happens when and how God chooses, but we can hasten it by sincere, prevailing prayer. And when the Lord does begin such a visitation, it is also essential that we give him room to do what he will, as the Asbury University administration has done by welcoming throngs of visitors and allowing students to worship day and night and even to miss classes within reasonable limits. Imagine a time of Eucharistic adoration in which the Lord started to move so powerfully, touching hearts and changing lives, that people didn't want to leave. Imagine the pastor or deacon being, being so willing to let the Holy Spirit act as he will that they changed plans and let the church stay open, welcoming outsiders, and let groups of people minister to each other through prayer, praise, and testimony. Imagine unbelievers falling on their face and declaring, God is really among you, 1 Corinthians 14:25. Witnessing this, who would then not believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist? 
This is one other curious coincidence that should give hope that the Lord is up to something greater than we can now see. At the very time Catholics are in a Eucharistic revival, a remarkable range of Protestant leaders have been testifying to their own kind of community's revival, a revival of devotion to and faith in the presence of Jesus in Holy Communion, his gift of himself in the Lord's Supper. Of course, they do not fully share the Catholic understanding of the sacrament, though many of them do have a very high view of the Eucharist. But apart from any human planning, God is drawing them closer to the Church's ancient understanding. Famed evangelical pastor Francis Chan said recently, I didn't know that for the first 1,500 years of Church history, Everyone saw communion as the literal body and blood of Christ, and it wasn't until 500 years ago that someone popularized a thought that is just a symbol and nothing more. For 1,500 years, there was never one guy in his pulpit being the center of the church. It was the body and blood of Christ. I've been dreaming about this. I've been praying about this. I would love it if one day in our country, here in the U.S., people understood the body of Christ, that they were just a part of it, and they got excited to gather and partake of the body and blood of Christ. Protestant charismatic leader Lou Engel, known for his massive prayer rallies, has been calling for the Great Communion Revival, exalting the power of God's blood received in communion together with other believers Charismatic Protestant Pastor Bill Johnson of Bethel Church in Redding, California, speaks of how he has begun to receive communion daily at his church and that it is one of the most important parts of his life. This is not symbolic. This is life. Pentecostal healing evangelist Benny Hinn publicly stated, more, more people are healed in a Catholic church than the Pentecostal churches that's an absolute fact. Because Catholic people revere the Eucharist, more people get healed in a Catholic church during communion than Pentecostals, because to us it's merely symbolic. But Jesus didn't say, this is symbolic of my body. He said, this is my body. He didn't say, this is symbolic of my blood. He said, this is my blood. We Catholics should recognize these extraordinary developments as signs that God himself is already at work to bring about a Eucharistic revival greater than we could dream of, one that not only rekindles faith in the sacrament at the center of our lives, but, even, but that even begins to bring back together the broken body of Christ so that all Christ's followers may once again sit down together at a simple Eucharistic table. Churchmen of the Year by George Weigel. When they were working together some years ago at the Ukrainian Catholic University, the only Catholic institution of higher learning in the former Soviet space, Father Boris Guziak and Father Sviatoslav Shevchuk did not imagine themselves occupying their present positions, nor could they imagine that they would be at the center of epic historical events in 2022 and 23, defending order and decency and world politics amidst a brutal war. 
In that wholly unanticipated circumstance, however, and from their current positions of responsibility in the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, Major Archbishop Shevchuk, the UGCC's head, and Archbishop Guziak, the Archparch of Philadelphia for Ukrainian Greek Catholics, have borne a powerful global witness to the truths of Catholic faith amidst a moral monstrous genocidal assault on the people of Ukraine. When I first met Boris Guziak at the home of mutual friends during a post-christening reception, he was a doctoral student at, student at Harvard, and I hadn't the faintest idea that I would eventually that the, I would eventually pass the dissertation he was writing, which has subsequently become an important book, to John Paul II over the papal dinner table. But on that Sunday afternoon in the mid-1980s, I did have the sense that this was someone with whom I would be in conversation for the rest of my life, and so it has been. It was then Father Guziak who urged Major, Major Archbishop Shevchuk the newly elected head of the largest of the Eastern Catholic Churches, to meet with me when Shevchuk and I were both in Rome in April 2011. Eight weeks before, I had spent two hours with Metropolitan Hilarion Alfayev of the Russian Orthodox Patriarchate of Moscow, who had said more than a few bitter and false things about the UGFC during our encounter at the Library of Congress. I had written a memorandum on that meeting, which Guziak thought his former colleagues should see while Shevchuk was meeting various Vatican officials, often starry-eyed about Russian Orthodoxy, after his ascension to the Metropolitan See of Kiev, Halek. The new major archbishop was terribly busy, but made an hour available during which I was struck both by his immediate friendliness and by his remarkable calm as he read through a memorandum that portended serious ecumenical difficulties for him, his only remark while reading the memo being an occasional, oh dear. Since the Russian invasion of Ukraine on February 24, 2022, Major Archbishop Shevchuk has inspired his church and entire Ukrainian people through daily reflections that address Ukraine's suffering through the lens of a cruciform faith. His remainder at his post as Kiev has been bombed time and again by the aggressors, maintaining a rigorous schedule of prayer and liturgical worship that demonstrates his determination and that of his entire church to maintain a spiritual life of praise, worship, and intercession under the most challenging conditions. The major archbishop has also worked tirelessly to educate the Roman authorities on the realities of the war, its cause, and Russia's barbaric conduct of its special military operation, once giving Pope Francis a fragment of a Russian mind that has destroyed the front of a Greek Catholic Church at the beginning of the war. Archbishop Guziak, while leading and renewing his archeparchy, has been tireless in supporting the university he and others built from scratch, which has remained in service to the country it is helping for. It has also been a most persuasive advocate for Ukraine's cause in the United States, in Rome, and throughout Europe. I cannot imagine another churchman who could have held the attention of participants at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, as Guziak recently did as he spoke of the stakes in Ukraine as being nothing less than the foundational principles of Catholic social doctrine, including the dignity of the human person, the common good, 
and solidarity in an environment dominated by elite concerns for the financial bottom line. Archbishop Goodziag got the devil's people thinking about the transcendent meaning of human life, which is unveiled every day when Ukrainians bra bravely face death, knowing that death is not the end of their individual stories or the human story. It was a Paschal evangelical message for more powerful than any I've seen conveyed by Vatican diplomats at their occasional Davos appearances. Major Archbishop Shevchuk and Archbishop Guziak are brilliant exemplars of apostolic zeal and courage. They can be such models because they are men of holiness. May they inspire all of us, and especially their brother bishops, to live the faith fearlessly in and out of season and in and out of danger. Thank you for joining us. My name is Chris Mahalik. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.